no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container, or puts it under a bed. But he puts it on a lampstand in order that those who come, who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that shall not become evident, nor anything secret that shall not be known and come to light. Therefore take care how you listen, for whoever has to him shall more be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. The, the Lord here is continuing his discussion of the word of God and the gospel. He just pre- presented a parable, the parable of the sower, seed, and soil in the previous passage, and now he continues to elaborate on this truth of the gospel. He says, by way of an analogy or parable, in verse 16, that no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand in order that those who come in may see the light. This is an obvious truth. We know this from daily circumstances that nobody lights a lamp or turns on the light in order to smother that light. Nobody does that. And the light in this case is the light of the gospel. It is the truth of the word of God that its intention is never to keep it hidden and covered. It's always to be exposed. It's always to be exposed. It's to be exposed with our lips and it's to be exposed with our life, our, our works, our good works. This is what is said in Matthew five, fourteen to 16, that Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And then he uses a similar analogy here with similar words. He uses this analogy. And then he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we must live according to this gospel, not keep it hidden either by mouth or by deeds. Both ways we have to expose the gospel. This is what God intends. You might hear sometimes an adage that's people think is biblical, but it's unbiblical. That is, uh, I will live the Christian life, I will live according to the, the gospel, be a disciple, and if necessary, use words. If necessary. And in their case, if necessary, use words means rarely use words. Rarely speak up and say anything about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the repentance for forgiveness of sins based on faith in Jesus Christ and things of that nature. They hardly ever say anything about that. They just want to live a, a, a life of good works. And that is basically the social gospel. That's what they're doing is living the social gospel. So there is no salvation in that. There's no redemption in that whatsoever. But Jesus does not believe that way. Jesus believes that the light has to be proclaimed. In fact, in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, he says, He called us out of darkness into light that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. It says that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We're supposed to proclaim it. We're supposed to open our mouth. But it should be consistent. Mouth and movements, lips and life, they should go together. Then he says in 17, For nothing is hidden that shall not become evident, nor anything secret that shall not be known and come to light. He's saying here that though in some cases that gospel truth is private, it is secret, it is hidden, 
It happens in strange ways. It happens in ways that the Holy Spirit does, just like the wind in John chapter 3. He works here and there. He works in very secret and mysterious ways many times. However, that gospel that happened in a corner, somebody was converted in his own room, but then it has to come out of that room. It has to come out of his house, and it has to spread to other people. And he's saying that this is what will happen to the gospel. Nothing is hidden that shall not become evident. It has to be exposed. That's what God intends. Even though conversion happens sometimes in a private setting, it comes to light and then people are uh, told of that. People are, are, are informed of that conversion. And then it, it spreads and spreads and spreads. That's the way it's supposed to be. Then he says in verse 18, Therefore, take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. First, he warns us, he says, take care how you listen. Take care, be cautious. He's saying, don't listen flippantly. Don't listen with eyes closed and ears shut and heart hard. Don't listen and come into a situation such as a worship service or to a Bible study or listening to your friend explain the gospel to you. Don't listen skeptically. Don't listen casually. Don't listen flippantly. Listen with caution. Take care. Be, be sure you know what you're doing. Don't come into a situation where you're hearing the word of God and ready to reject it out of hand immediately. Don't be that way. He says in 18, For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. There is a similar statement made by Christ in Luke 19.26. In Luke 19.26, he says, I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And this is after he explained the parable of money usage, which also has its parallel in Matthew chapter 25, 14 to 30. Remember, this parable of money usage is this parable of three slaves who were given different amounts of money, Two of the slaves worked and did well with the money that the master gave while he went away for a while. But the one slave, he didn't do anything. In fact, he buried it. And then when the master came back, he actually says to the master, yes, I I didn't do anything. I was afraid, so on and so forth, because you are an exacting man and I didn't uh, want to do anything. So Jesus calls him, you wicked, lazy slave. You wicked, lazy slave. And then he, he orders for the one piece of money to be given to the one who had the five pieces and made ten, and now he has eleven. This is uh, signifying the day of ju- judgment and the things that will happen. That that one slave who had only one piece of money, it was taken away from him. So this is the way it is when people hear the gospel. When they hear the gospel and don't act on it, they don't do what they're supposed to do, then judgment comes on them. So whatever little bit of truth he had, whatever little bit of gospel he heard, whatever amount that he participated in that, 
even that will amount to nothing because he did not fully imbibe it. He didn't believe it. He didn't obey it. He didn't show that he believed it by his obedience. There was nothing to show forth. That's what Jesus is warning against. He's saying, whoever does not have even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. He thought he was just fine. He thought everything was okay between him and God. Maybe because he went to church occasionally. Maybe because he, he gave some money to church occasionally. Maybe because he did a good deed here or there occasionally. And he thought everything is just fine because I stay away from those, those major sins. I'm not like those wicked people in that neighborhood or the wicked people that I hear about on the TV. I'm not like them. I'm just fine and I have my occasional religion. And so everything's okay between me and God. But whatever he learned, whatever he knew, whatever he enjoyed in terms of having some kind of uh, material prosperity and not having been thrown into prison because he was a, a murderer or something, nothing like that happened and he thought he was fine. On the day of judgment, all that's going to be taken away from him, Jesus says. It doesn't matter. That, all of that doesn't matter because he did not believe in Christ and he didn't show true faith in Christ by producing the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't matter. So that's why he says, take care how you listen. Don't be like that. Which is the way the vast majority of Christianity, this is the way it is. The vast majority of Christianity, they have a bit of truth. They have bits here and there. They have some truth, but they don't embrace it. They don't really believe it because it doesn't show up in their life. They are worried about the things that Jesus mentioned in the parable in the preceding paragraph. For example, he says in verse 13, 813, These have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. And 14, And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. These are the people who did not take care how they listened. They didn't take care. Now, let's turn to verses 19 to 21. Luke 8, 19 to 21, where Jesus is going to further illustrate and emphasize the fact that when we hear the word of God, we must obey it. Verse 19, And his mother came to him, and his brothers also, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Who hear the word of God and do it. Notice in this passage that Jesus makes a separation or he produces some distance between his natural family and his spiritual family. He brings distance between his natural family and his spiritual family. And what is the basis? The gospel. The gospel is the basis. Let's see from a few other places that Jesus does the same thing. Luke 11. Luke 11, 27. Luke 11, 27 to 28. And it came about, while he said these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, 
On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Who hear it and observe it or obey it. Here too, he, he even produces this distance between his own mother, who was a believer. His own mother and those who hear the word of God and observe it. Not that he didn't believe his mother was a true believer or anything, but he's illustrating that it does not depend on natural generation. It doesn't depend on your father and your mother. It doesn't depend on your ancestry. It doesn't depend on your bloodline and genealogy. No amount of pedigree amounts to anything. It's those who hear the word of God and obey it, who hear the gospel and obey it. They believe and they continue in belief, perseverance until the end. That's what really matters. This is what he meant in Luke 6, 46 to 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You say that, you use the word Lord, which is a right word, it's a good word, that's what he is, but you don't do it. That's when he announced that this parable of the house built upon the rock, house built upon the sand, and then when the floods came, it destroyed that house built upon the sand. But the house that was on firm ground, the gospel, and obeyed it, that house withstood the flood. That's what he meant there. And as well, he is further illustrating what we've seen in the previous paragraph, Luke 8, 4 to 15, because he says, those who are blessed, who are his real mother and brothers, are those who hear the word of God and do it. Luke eight fifteen, And the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Notice those words there. It's good ground. These people hear it. They hear it in an honest and good heart. That is, they don't come with malintent. They don't come in deceit. They don't come as pretenders and frauds when they come into a religious service. They don't come like that. They come in an honest heart. They really want to know. They really want to grow. They want to know who this God is. They want to know who this Christ is. They come with an honest heart, and they also come with a good heart. They don't have evil motives. They don't, have, they, they don't come in order to m- make some money by meeting new people. They don't come to promote their business into a church context. They don't come with a, an evil motive. They don't come for that, those kinds of monetary reasons or anything else that people invent. They don't come for those things. They come with a good heart. And then, when they hear this word, they hold on to it fast. Holding on to it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. That's the same thing as what he says in verse 21, who hear the word of God and do it. They obey it. As James says, do, do not be merely hearers of the word and not doers, because those who are that way, they delude themselves. They deceive themselves. They think that everything's just fine between themselves and God, when it's not just fine. They deceive themselves, in fact. Jesus, in Luke 14, one more place on this division between family is in Luke 14 Luke 14 25 Luke 14 25 he says now great multitudes were going along with him and he turned and said to them 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he illustrates this. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says calculate. Figure it out. No, understand the cost of being a disciple. To be a true disciple, consider the cost. Otherwise, don't pursue it. Because if you pursue it and withdraw, you will be ridiculed. You will be ridiculed by the true church and you will be judged by the true church. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And you will be laughed at by God himself. Psalm 2 says, the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. He laughs at the rebellious nations who think that they can shake off the yoke of God or the obligations of faith and repentance. They think that they can shake it off. But God laughs at that. And in the same way he's saying here, it even goes down to the family level. Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even his own life. In fact, that's where the ultimate problem is. Our own flesh, our own natural condition is where the ultimate problem is. He says we have to hate. We have to hate ourselves in the sense of hate our sin and all that our sin produces, including the wrath of God and punishment in hell. And when our own family, blood relatives, are putting a distance between us and God, we have to hate them too. Hate them in the sense that we reject what they want us to do, what they want us to believe, how they want us to conform to them, rather than conforming to God in Christ. We have to conform to Christ. Take up our cross daily and follow Him. And the daily, that term is used in Luke 9.23. He didn't use it in Luke 14, but he did in Luke 9.23. People think, okay, I'll take up my cross, but I'll do that once in a while. No, Luke 9.23 says daily. It's a daily fight. It's a daily battle that we have to take up. Then our next passage is verses 22 to 25. Having emphasized the word of God, now he's going to emphasize the need for faith in the one who presents the Word of God, that is, in Christ. He's now going to emphasize faith in Christ. Verse 22, Now it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. 
and they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to him and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Let's read the parallel accounts. The first one is in Matthew eight twenty-three. Matthew eight twenty-three to 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And then Mark, Mark chapter 4, Mark 4, 35, 35 to 41. Mark 4, 35. And on that day, even, uh, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the sea, and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Christ obviously knew what he was about to do. He obviously knew, being God and man and having these intentions purposely in his mind. He wanted to do this. He does this on occasion. He will set up the disciples for a test. He will set up the disciples for a test in order to see what kind of response they have and in order to teach them, in order to teach them. And sometimes that teaching comes with a rebuke or some kind of chastisement in their lack of faith. Now, the Bible doesn't always say that Jesus is setting up his disciples for a test or in the Old Testament that the Lord is setting up the people for a test. It doesn't always say, but sometimes it does. And it says it enough that we should know that when Jesus does this, it is a test. Here's a, a clear example. John 6, John 6, verses 4 to 6. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. He's about to feed the multitudes, but he asks a question and said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? He didn't ask that because he was 
trying to figure out how to help and he needed the disciples' input. It wasn't like that. He knew what he was going to do, as John the Apostle explains in verse 6. And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. That's what we have happening here in Luke 8. Jesus knows what he's going to do. And notice, he gives them clear advice and they obey. Verse 22, it came about on on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake and they launched out. They are on one side of the lake or the sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. It's known by different names. Uh, The Lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. This is what it is. And they're on one side and they're going to the other. And it's dark, it's night. And 23 says, But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake. And they began to be swamped and to be in danger. There is uh, a tempest at the sea, and they are swamped. There's water in the boat, as it says in the other accounts. And also from the other accounts, we read that Jesus was asleep in the stern. He went and found a secluded place in the stern, and he found a cushion. Or he brought along a cushion. There was a cushion or a pillow there, and he rested there to sleep. He did this on purpose. He knew he had to go to the cross. He knew he needed to rise from the dead. He knew all of that. He did this on purpose. The disciples are fine until Luke 8, 24. And they came to him and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And from the other accounts we saw... Don't you care? Don't you care that we are perishing? They confront Jesus. They rebuke Jesus as though he doesn't care for them. Of course he cares for them. And they say, we are perishing. And and being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. Who was the one who created the world and made the whole globe full of water before he separated the waters and filled the seas and also filled the land with animals and all the creatures? God. Who was the one who caused a flood to come in the days of Noah upon the whole world, the globe? It was God. He caused it to happen, and then he made it withdraw so that there was dry land again after the day, uh, Noah and his family come out of the ark. It's, it's livable again. Who did all that? And who was the one who split the Red Sea in the time of Moses? Who was the one who divided the Jordan River in the time of Joshua? It was God in the time of Joshua when they crossed the Jordan River. The Jordan River was split also by Elijah. It was also split by Elisha. Who has control over the waters? And then what about all these miracles that Jesus had performed earlier in his public ministry? Did the disciples not know all this? Of course they knew. But they did not have faith at this moment. They lacked faith. Now, they had faith that he was Christ and he would die for their sins. There's no doubt about that. But they had this momentary lack of faith. Because they confront Jesus as though Jesus is doing something wrong, as though Jesus is being careless at the moment, and they are about to die. And even Jesus would die at this time if they didn't stop Jesus from sleeping. Jesus is more worried about himself, they think, than everybody around. That's not true. Because Jesus gets up, 
and he makes everything calm. Then 25, and he said to them, Where is your faith? Or you men of little faith? Or you men of no faith? What he means by you men of no faith, it's practically not there. That's what he meant by no faith. Or they have little faith. Their faith needed to be larger. It needed to grow. And it showed their lack of faith showed because they did not trust in God in the right way at that time, in that circumstance. They did not trust God. They didn't trust the character of God, the great creator, the great redeemer. They did not trust what miracles Christ had already performed and, and demonstrated in front of them. They did not trust in the power of God. They didn't trust in the character of God to believe that he would take care of them and that because of his character, he would exert his power to benefit them. They didn't trust those things. Both his character and his strength. They didn't trust both at this moment. That's why Jesus rebukes them. And then when he performs this mighty miracle and confronts them for their lack of faith or little faith, they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? This is an amazing person we have right here with us. That's the, the awe that stri strikes them. It's the, it's the awe and fear and amazement that overcomes them. They are in the presence of the Lord himself who demonstrates who he is and his work time and again. This is what should happen to all of us. When Jesus is present and when Jesus acts on our behalf, we ought to do the same thing. We ought to be amazed at Christ. Uh, a word of clarification one more time. They know who this is. They know. We know that, that, he, that this is the Christ. We, we, and we have examples earlier in their public um, transition between John the Baptist and Jesus in John chapter 1, verses uh, 35 till the end of the chapter, 35 to 51, that they knew who this was. It's very clear they knew who this was. And they were following him. They believed in him. And it's just when they are awestruck, they count themselves unworthy. That's what's going on here. They're counting themselves unworthy. That's, that's what happened earlier in chapter 5. Chapter 5, remember, when they didn't catch any fish all night, and then in the morning Jesus encounters Simon, uh, Peter, uh, James, and John. They're all in the boat. And then they throw the net overboard, they catch a, a large catch, and then Peter, it says in chapter 5, verse 8, when, but when Peter, Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. This is what should happen to us. When God reminds us that we did not have faith and we should have had faith and he provides for us, it should make us bow down, bow low, worship, re, uh, understand our own humility, our own place before him. And that should increase our faith. 
Recognition of humility is the means of increasing faith. Humility increases faith. Remember, we have an example of this when the disciples asked him, uh, Lord, increase our faith. They asked, Lord, increase our faith. This is in, in Luke. When they asked this, then what does Jesus teach them in Luke 17? Luke 17, 5 to 10. He teaches them about the slave who does whatever his master does, uh, says. They ask him to do so in verse 5. Lord, increase our faith. Um, but then in verse 10, So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Humility will increase our faith. So God is constantly testing us and bringing us to a place of humility to increase our faith. Humility precedes an increase of faith. So let us heed the word of God and let us remember the character of God and His power to assist us day by day. This is the way we grow. Grow in the faith. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.